Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in Luke 2 this morning, which is finally a Christmas passage. Third week of Advent, Advent we'll finally study Christmas, but... Uh, Luke chapter two is where we'll be. We've looked at this series of Advent. Advent is Latin for coming or arrival. So for us on this side of history, we look back at the first coming of Jesus and we rejoice over Christmas. And then we wait and we watch for his second coming. Bible is clear that Jesus will come again. Although not as a baby, uh, but as a victorious king coming to set everything right with the world. And he will establish a new kingdom. Uh, But in the meantime, we live in the already and the not yet. We live uh, in the already that Jesus has come, good has come, the gospel has come, good news has come, and yet he has not fully come to restore and redeem everything. And so we have the tension of good and evil. We have the tension of hope and hopelessness. We have the tension of of love and hostility. We have those tensions uh, within us in the already and the not yet. We're gonna study this morning uh, joy this morning. Um, so put on your happy faces because we're going to study joy and you don't want to be that person who's not joyful on the joy Sunday. We're going to study joy this morning um, through the lens of the, of the shepherds. Traditionally, like in, in church liturgy, so ancient church history, all, every piece of the Advent story, uh, each candle on the Advent wreath is represented by a character in the account. And so joy is represented by, by the shepherds. So we want to study that. This morning, we're gonna be in Luke 2. We're gonna go back to the Old Testament. My hope, uh, so the Lord so direct, is that uh, we would have a sense of God's power and holiness that leads us to joy with him. That we would have a sense of the power and majesty and set-apartness of God that we might actually find joy in him. Because joy, happiness is fleeting. Uh, It has to be rooted in, in something, Let's go to Luke chapter two. We're gonna go through a few verses here. Then we'll go back to the Old Testament uh, just to make sure we understand that this Christmas story began back in Genesis where uh, God told Eve, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send a warrior. I'm gonna send a Messiah to defeat the enemy. Luke chapter two, verse eight. In the same region, there were shepherds keeping watch or out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. All right, so I wanna, uh, again, give us some history here. Give us some perspective contextually to understand what's happening. These verses, like many other, have just become white noise. They become things that we know about and we hear about them. And, and they're a good story. It's a good narrative. But I feel like we miss, I miss just the depth and the gravity of it. Uh, so the angel appears to the shepherds. And the angel's bringing what, what is called great, good news of great joy. This word good news is the Greek word euangelion, where we get the word gospel. I'm bringing a declaration, a good declaration of great joy. Now, I don't know what your experience is with church, 
Uh, but for many of us, we don't associate great joy with the church. We associate uh, the church with uh, great legalism, great guilt, uh, great sadness, great mourning, um, whatever it is. We may not associate the church with great joy. And what a sad commentary for us that the church should actually be ground zero for joy. We should be joy to the world. And the angels show up and they tell the shepherds that, behold, I'm, I'm gonna give you good news of great joy. This word behold means pay special attention. Listen to the word. It's major pain. Listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth. Just showed my age by referencing major pain. This is, the, the angels are saying, pay attention here. As if the, the shepherds had somewhere else to look at that point. But behold, he says, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Now, uh, the shepherds are interesting. Again, we live on this side of history. So when we think shepherds, if you've grown up in church, maybe you think Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10. We know about King David, who was a shepherd boy. And this is how we associate uh, shepherds. But back in these times, shepherds were not what we think of them now. Uh, They were despised and rejected. Shepherds, um, were not trustworthy people. Um, many of the people in that time would think these, these men, these shepherds, they, would, they enjoy the company of other men and sheep more than they enjoyed the company of a good woman is kind of what would be said about them. Uh, they were the, the riffraff. They were the dirty ones. They, were, they, just, they weren't valued and respected at all, particularly to the Jews and those elite Jews. Even though David was a a shepherd, Psalm 23 was in play at that point, over time, they begin to see the shepherds in a different way and for some good reason. In fact, shepherds, their testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. They were not to be trusted because they had so much time to sit around and tell stories. Who knew if what they were saying was true or just made up? We didn't know, so their testimony was inadmissible. Shepherds made their living uh, by bartering sheep. Most of them are wool or whatever it is, and they would barter for food or barter for goods. And then many shepherds then would barter, and then they would try to sell whatever they got. So they would sell um, jewelry. They would sell food or milk or whatever it is that they got. But people knew not to buy from the shepherds. Uh, they were the people in a van in the alley in New York City. You don't buy a coach bag from those people because uh, it's probably stolen, right? Or made up or no offense if you're one of those people. Uh, but if that, that's, that's, this was the same kind of idea. They are the back alley, no good, um, swindling kind of men. They, they, they cannot be trusted. So again, if you and I are writing the Christmas story, I think we could find better people for Hark the Herald Angels to sing to, couldn't we? We could figure out better people, people that other people trusted, people that had some kind of reputation, a good reputation, people that uh, maybe had some kind of influence. It was not these men, which again, just reminds us like we studied last, last week. God keeps showing up in the most unlikely of places, using the most unlikely places and the most unlikely people to herald his good news. But we've come so far from that, haven't we? We've lost it. The angels tell the shepherds it's good news of great joy. Now, the shepherds are gonna, we're gonna see what their joy looked like, but I wanna give us a definition of joy moving forward. Joy is a delight rooted in a spiritual reality. This is what joy is. And I know we've heard all the things joy and happiness are different. Happiness is temporal. Joy is eternal. 
um, happiness is fleeting, joy is forever, regardless of circumstance. And all those things are absolutely true. They're absolutely true. But sometimes I think what we make it sound like is that joy actually isn't joyful at all. Do you ever feel that way? We're like, well, joy, joy is not happiness. It's just a decision you make to, to just be joyful. I'd, I'd rather be happy than have to force something. I'd rather just be able to laugh and smile and I'd rather have that than joy. Biblically, joy throughout the New Testament is a delight, a happiness, an emotion rooted in a spiritual reality. So the truth for many of us is we don't experience joy because either we have a wrong spiritual reality or we do not have a spiritual reality. And so we root our lives in a worldly reality. We root our lives in a tangible reality. We don't root our world, our lives, in something that is a spiritual reality. Even worse is that we've taken our worldly realities and then we've put masks on them to make them spiritual realities that have actually robbed us of joy. It's particularly in churches, we've taken joy, we've taken the good news of the gospel and we've made it so worldly, but then called it spiritual because it's on a coffee mug or a bumper sticker or a cross-stitch pillow at your grandma's house that then we call that a spiritual reality and it's just, it's just not. Like ideas that, uh, that you have to be good to be loved, that you have to be righteous for God to love you, that uh, church attendance is next to godliness, that whatever it is, we have, we've built these things that God is angry with you, God is vindictive, that Christians, we don't struggle with sin, we are expected to be perfect. And it might sound spiritual, but it's actually worldly. And so many of us have built our lives on what we call a spiritual reality, which is nothing but worldly rubbish. And it's why we don't have joy today. It's why for many of us, particularly those of us who have grown up in the church, we don't have joy. We don't have joy. We begrudgingly study, we begrudgingly uh, come to church, or maybe we don't, but maybe, maybe we come so that we can be considered something, we come to prove something, we come to earn something. We argue to be right rather than to win people to Jesus. We fight for our elite standing in America as Christians as opposed to just giving of ourselves for the good of others and the glory of God. We've lost joy. We just don't have it anymore. But what was it about these shepherds that God would choose them to be the heralds of good news of great joy? So I wanna take us back to the Old Testament to another shepherd. And I wanna I want paint, hopefully, a biblical picture of who God is in the Old Testament. Because there comes this moment where God chooses the shepherds. He's gonna reveal who he is to the shepherds. And he tells them it's good news of great joy for all the people. So why them and why does it matter? Especially the significance of Jesus as a, why does that matter? He comes as a baby. Why couldn't he just come later in life? Uh, we know why he doesn't come as a 14-year-old boy. That would not be helpful for anyone. But why didn't he come uh, smelling of Axe body spray and playing Fortnite? Why, why not? But he, is, he came as a baby, and why? Why? And why the shepherds? There have been 400 years of complete silence of God. No more prophets speaking his name, no pastors declaring um, who he is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew, nothing for 400 plus years. But even before that, it seemed like God was far off, no matter how hard they tried. So let's go to uh, Moses. Let's go to Exodus chapter three. So you can turn there in your Bibles or in your phone. It'll be on the screen as well. I encourage you to turn there if you can. Exodus chapter three. 
I wanna take us from the shepherds of the New Testament to a particular shepherd in the Old Testament. Exodus uh, chapter three. Moses had um, uh, set God's people free. He was gonna set God's people free from slavery in Egypt. He was placed in a basket by his parents because Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptians, was gonna kill the firstborn male child of every family. He didn't, he didn't want the Israelites to continue to rise in quantity and then take over. And so uh, Moses' parents, good God-fearing people, put him in a basket. He floats down the river and ends up moving into the home of Pharaoh, raised by Pharaoh, rises to power, but he's still a Hebrew. And as a Hebrew, he looks out upon the people and sees his Hebrew uh, brothers and sisters, Hebrew people, being beaten by the Egyptian taskmasters. And he's just had enough at this point. And so Moses goes out to confront a taskmaster. And while he's out there, the conversation gets heated and Moses murders an Egyptian taskmaster. And in the moment, realizes what he has just done, knows he can't go back home to Pharaoh. He can't go to Pharaoh's courts. And so he runs and he runs away and flees. He's a murderer on the run in the wilderness, has no plan, nowhere to go, nothing like that. Number of years pass, and uh, in the wilderness, Moses meets a woman, like we do in the wilderness, and we meet women, and he meets a woman there. Um, Her father is Jethro, and Jethro is a priest, and Jethro is also a shepherd, and so he meets this woman, marries her, and then we're gonna find that he ends up working for his father-in-law. So I don't know what kind of wilderness you've been in, uh, but maybe it's not as bad as working for your father-in-law, but he's working for his father-in-law, and this is where we meet him in Exodus chapter three, before the plagues, before let my people go, before Charles and Heston, before all of that, uh, Exodus chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock. Who keeps flocks? All shepherds. Shepherds keep flocks. He is a shepherd. He was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, Bad enough to work for your father-in-law if his name is Jethro. I feel like that's even more intimidating. And he's the priest of Midian. Now, I know that pastor's kids can wild out and go a little crazy sometimes, but um, I pray that my daughter doesn't marry a murderer, but maybe she will, I I don't know. Uh, But Moses' father-in-law is a priest. He's set apart and he has these sheep and Moses is a shepherd. He continues, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. All right, so uh, in our Western culture, if you look at a map or a compass, north is always at the top, right? So the idea is that if you face north, we know you never eat shredded wheat. We know it's north, east, south, west, and we know west and east. Um, Semitic literature uh, for Jews, for Israelites, would always face east. East was north for them because that's where the sun rose. It actually makes more sense. That's where the sun rose. So they knew that would be direct east. They knew that. So then behind them would have been the west. So in Semitic Jewish, ancient Jewish Hebrew literature, west side, the west side was considered bad. It was, it was the evil. It was Star Wars, the dark side. You faced east because that's where the sun rose and light came from, but light went away in the west. So it's the back, some of your translations say on the back side of the mountain, that's what it means. If you're facing east, that would be the back. So the west, the back side would have been considered evil or dark or just substandard, not good enough. So here's Moses, a murderer on the run in the wilderness working for his father-in-law. But his father-in-law doesn't trust him with the good sheep on the east side. He only trusts him with the not-so-good sheep on 
the west side of, of the wilderness. So he doesn't get the good ones, the pretty ones, the ones that, that obey. He gets the ones where even if they die, no one cares. This is, these, are, these are the sheep that Moses had. So he's not even a good shepherd. Working for his father-in-law on the west side of the wilderness, running from his past. Verse two, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Who appeared to the shepherds in Luke chapter two? Angels. There's something to where God is drawn to people like the shepherds. God is drawn to people with a shady past. God is drawn to people who just finally admit who they are. This was Moses' life. This is what he was going to, he's married. He's put down roots now. And the angel appears to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Here's what we need to learn about God from Genesis 3, chapter 2. God is other than. Fire uh, requires fuel to keep it going. If it's a bush, if it's paper, if it's old uh, cassette tapes, if it's uh, cardboard, if it's logs, the way that fires burn is they use whatever it has as fuel to keep it going. It, fires are dependent upon something to keep it going. But God is a fire, but he's not like most fires. He doesn't require the bush to keep him burning. He is set apart. He is different. He is other than. He does not require anything to exist. The only being in the universe that was not created is God. Verse three, Moses said, so uh, when you're wandering on the backside of the wilderness, tending sheep for your father-in-law, um, you don't talk to a lot of people. And so Moses now will narrate his life for us. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. Moses notices the bush. He says, I'm, I, need to, I need to pay, I need to look at this. What is happening? And he turns. Verse four, and when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, that he turned to pay attention, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. God calls Moses' name twice, which is not like most of us as parents when we call our children's name twice. It's not usually good if we just say your name twice. If we throw your middle name in there, it's really bad. God calls Moses, but um, again, in, in Hebrew literature, and as you see throughout the Old and New Testament, when God calls someone's name twice, this is a term of compassion and endearment. This is a welcoming term. Uh, he says in the New Testament, Jesus says, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked that, I, that he might sift you as wheat, and I have let him. He says, Martha, Martha, your sister has, has considered the better thing, which is to worship me. It's, it's endearing. And in fact, uh, it's actually a compelling, a come close kind of a phrase. Moses, Moses. It's compassionate. And then Moses says, here I am, which is a whole other sermon. But Moses says, this is where I am. I'm on the backside of a mountain working for my father-in-law. I was a powerful man in Egypt. I had great power. I had a beautiful palace. I had everything, mostly what I wanted. But here's where I am now. And maybe some of you this morning, you can relate to Moses. Like you once were something. You once had plans for something. But now this is, well, here's, here I am. I'm here. So God calls Moses near. Then look at verse five. And then God said, do not come near. Take the sandals off of your feet for the place on which you are standing is 
holy ground. So this has to be confusing for Moses. He says, Moses, Moses, draw near. Stop, don't come near. Come near, don't come near. Come here, stop. Come here, don't get too close. It's this weird, confusing rhythm of God compelling us near and then remembering or reminding us that he is set apart, he is sanctified. Have you ever felt like God has said, come here, and you've heard God loves you, he's drawing you near, and yet all you hear from God is don't come too close. Has anybody felt that way? Draw near, draw near, stop. That's close enough. God's calling Moses out of compassion and love, and then there's the set-apartness, the holiness of God that cannot let Moses get too close in impurity. Says the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Now the wilderness isn't holy, the sand isn't holy, but it's the presence of God that is holy. And so Moses has to make changes to come close. And God says to Moses in verse six, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Um, we, we do a pretty bad job of glorifying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if they are these heroes for us who are just examples of how to be pure and holy and righteous. Go read their stories and tell me how pure and righteous Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is meant to elevate the grace of God, not to elevate the holiness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Adam and Eve hide from God. Moses hides from God. Cain hides from God. In our lack of holiness, we hide from the holiness of God. So what's gonna happen in the rest of the Old Testament is that God will pronounce his holiness. It's, the word just means set apart. He will, he will pronounce his set apartness. He is altogether separate. He is holy. He is perfect. And because of his holiness, he cannot be in the presence of unholiness. He cannot have that near to him. And so throughout the Old Testament, the point of the law, the point of the writers of the Old Testament is to magnify the set-apartness of God. It's what they are doing throughout the Old Testament. So this continues throughout Exodus. God uh, calls Moses to set his people free. He does. He gets to a mountain and God calls him up to the mountain. And at the top of the mountain, the same mountain, but now called Mount Sinai, God's gonna give Moses the 10 commandments. It's on this mountain where God would reveal himself to Moses, but would say, you cannot look at me fully. You can't take all of me. So I'm gonna let you see where I just was. And then God's gonna give 10 commandments to the Israelites. But listen to how God sets up the rules. Exodus chapter 19, you can turn there, it'll be on the screen. Exodus 19. God tells Moses, you shall set limits for the people all around. Have you ever felt limits to God? Have you ever felt like you, you get as close as you can, but you're still not close enough? God tells Moses, set limits around this mountain and say to the people, Take care, be careful not to go up into the mountain or even touch the edge of it. Now, I don't know where mountains start and stop. They're all land. So that would be very confusing to me. Don't touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Later on, God would even say, even if a beast, even if an animal touches this mountain, you will have to stone it and kill it. It will be put to death. Do you sense what God is like? He is holy. 
He's altogether separate. He is set apart. He is perfect in every way. That we can't even get close to where he is. He would lead his people uh, with a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night as if to not be seen or to be touched. Inside of this uh, makeshift tabernacle, this tent they would travel with, he would have a place where he would dwell, where the smoke would come up from and you could not get close to it. They would put together what's called the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant, there would be all kinds of artifacts to represent uh, the journey of the people of God through the wilderness and the ways that God had set them free and they are to remember. And uh, God would use this Ark of the Covenant inside of particular holy of holy places in the temple. And this ark was particularly set apart in such a way that there were even particular ways in which you had to move the Ark of the Covenant. God gave commands of how to build the ark. Uh, Picture just a box, essentially. And God gave commands. This is how you build it, and here's how you carry it. You put grommets on each side, you'll slide poles through, and then set apart sanctified, cleansed men, men who have gone through certain rituals, of cleansing and purification, will then put the, the bars, the poles on their shoulders, and then you will carry, carry the ark as far as you need to. This is how you will carry the ark of the covenant. Well, David becomes king, shepherd boy David becomes king, and David wants the ark where he is. He's building something, he wants the ark there, and so he calls for the ark to be transported. And so, um, like we do, uh, God says, do it this way. And we're like, yeah, but there's a better way. Let me just do it my way. This would be more efficient. It's too heavy to carry. And so they build a cart for the ark, an ark cart, if you will. And so they're gonna attach it to oxen and they will carry now the ark from where it rests to where David wants it. So they travel for many days. Uh, They worship along the way. They're doing the right things. And as they reach what's called the threshing floor in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, which probably is more like Macon, Uzzah, uh, Uzzah is a son of a man who actually housed the Ark of the Covenant for a number of, of days. So Uzzah, because it was in his presence, because he was familiar with the Ark, he lost touch of the sanctity, the holiness of the Ark of the Covenant. And Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. So the ox stumbles, the cart shifts, and the ark begins to fall. And Uzzah, like many of us would do, reaches out to stop the ark from falling. Because like many of us, what's worse than the ark of the covenant, this precious thing, the presence of God falling at the threshing floor of Nacon? What, What could be worse than that? So he reaches out and touches it. Doing the right thing, it seems like, I'm trying to save whatever is right about God. And then verse seven, but the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. So uh, we talk a lot about how God loves us and how caring and compassionate God is. And then we read passages like this and we don't know what to do with it. Well, I thought you said he loved me. It really seems like he's pretty particular about his stuff. Like at least my grandma puts plastic over her couches. Can't he just do that to the Ark of the Covenant? It seems like he has, it seems like this is really trivial. It seems like Uzzah was doing the right thing. It seems like God's a real stickler for the rules. I mean, wouldn't the wheels of the cart made a lot of sense? God is set apart. God is holy. 
God is sovereign and in charge and what he says goes. And there are things that we must do based on what he has commanded us to do, particularly the Old Testament. God is set apart. There are limits around the uh, mountain of Sinai. This continues and then there's the temple and inside the temple is the Holy of Holies where only the high priest once a year after he went through uh, cleansing and purification rituals, got three negative COVID tests in a row, then he could go in uh, to the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices once a year. The COVID test was a joke. It's not in the Bible. He could, then he could go in. But even then, he had to be particularly cleansed through sacrifice. And if he wasn't, if he missed a spot, if he wasn't quite cleansed, God would strike him dead for being in his presence. God was set apart. He was revered. He was feared. He was holy. But please understand, that hasn't changed God is still set apart. God is still holy. God still commands things of us. He still demands perfection. He still demands holiness. There is holy ground. And to be near to him, one had to be perfectly holy. Which then makes Luke 2 even more confusing, doesn't it? Because if that's what God demands, why doesn't God appear to the Pharisees and the scribes? Why doesn't God appear to the Levitical priests? Why wouldn't he tell people who gave their lives to being set apart? And he appears to the shepherds. Well, it's because God has a new covenant. The holiness of God, still high and lifted up, is now going to grant us something. And he's gonna do it at the beginning of the New Testament. He's gonna do it with shepherds. Back in Luke chapter two, in the same region, there were shepherds. Not, Not scribes, not Pharisees, not high priests, shepherds just doing their job. The angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Why were they filled with fear? Because the glory of God means don't touch the ark. Don't come close. Don't touch this or you'll die. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. What kind of joy is there in a God who won't let me get close to him? Unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who was Christ the Lord. And here's something significant that we brush past every December. This will be a sign for you. A sign of what? A sign that the Savior has come. A sign the new covenant is beginning. A sign that something is changing in the universe. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that the fullness of the deity of God rests in Jesus. Jesus is fully God, which means he is fully set apart. He is fully holy. He is fully other than, and yet he's coming clothed in human skin and wrapped in swaddling cloths. I heard this this past week from a woman named Jackie Hill Perry, who's an author, read all of her stuff, listen to her. This is amazing. She says, for Jesus to be swaddled, God had to be touched. 
So hold on, because Exodus 3, don't get close. Ark of the Covenant, don't touch. Holy of Holies, don't come near. And now, 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 which, uh, which, which we hear in Galatians is the fullness of time. At the apex of history, God sends Jesus. Why? Because things are about to get different. For the first time in human history, God could be touched. So I don't know what your experience is with God, but if your experience is that God is far off, I would say to you, Merry Christmas. God has drawn near to us. Still demanding holiness, still demanding perfection. But he sent his son, fully God, fully man, to be born in a manger. The joy of Christmas gives us the spiritual reality that God has come near. And if there's any spiritual reality for you to live your life, to base your life on, it's this one. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to you. He has not run away. He has not turned his back. He will never leave us or forsake us. And in his demands of holiness, in his demands of perfection, he sent his son to be the perfection for us that we would put on his righteousness, that we would approach God with confidence. Do you hear me this morning? The God of Mount Sinai, the God who said, you can't come near, saw your sin, sees your sin and says, I'm coming, you can come near. You can draw near, but our propensity in our sin, in our shepherding, in our Moses on the backside of the mountain and running from our past is that we run from God instead of running towards God. But the core mark of a Christian, of a son or a daughter of God is that you run to him in your sin, not from him because you understand that he is, was a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in a manger. Have you sinned? Yes. Have I sinned? Yes. Yes. And yet, come near, you brokenhearted. Continues in the New Testament and God uses authors to remind us in Hebrews 4 that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, so we can hold fast to our confession, our beliefs, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and is yet without sin. He's the perfect one. Let us then with confidence. Are you confident before the Lord this morning? Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done on your behalf. With confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace. Moses, Moses, and no longer is it take off your shoes. It's Moses, Moses, I sent Jesus. Draw near to me. We may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 12, 18, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness and gloom and a tempest. You have not come to a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they cannot endure the order that was given. And here's the order. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you, me, us, you have come to Mount Zion, a new mountain, to the city of the living God, a heavenly Jerusalem, 
the innumerable angels and festal, festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are all enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator, the bridge, the administrator of a new covenant, a new promise and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know what Abel was? He was a shepherd. And even the blood of that shepherd can't touch the blood of the good shepherd. That's why the angel would say this is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All of them. Not just those of us with Awana Awards, not those of us with perfect attendance, not those of us who, um, who serve and are life group leaders, who serve to drive through Christmas, not just those, not those who give faithfully, not those who only listen to Christian music, uh, not those who have never cussed, not those, but all of us. He has been brought near for, to all of us. Great joy for all the people. Are you broken this morning? Are you beaten down this morning? Are you depressed? Are you sad? Are you anxious this morning? This is good news of great joy for you. For you. The God who was once far off has now been brought near. God is accessible enough for the shepherd and yet awesome enough for the scholar. When I read throughout scripture, even today, when I meet people who just seem to have the joy of the Lord, it seems like most of them have a Moses story, don't they? They have some way they wandered off, some way they fell away, some way they were chasing their own things and God radically saved them. God spoke to them. It's like they, they just have joy because they knew what they once were. But listen, there are some of us this morning, the reason why we don't have joy is become, because we become so fixated on the facts about God that we're missing the joy of faith in God. You're missing it this morning. If you're just reading your Bible to argue, reading your Bible to know, coming to listen to be taught and never once sat in the presence of an almighty God, it's no reason you're not joyful, but even you scholar, you can have joy, joy. Joy inexpressible because he has been brought near. He's good news of great joy for all the people. Hey, Ray, I'm gonna skip down to that Phil Riken quote. Phil Riken is uh, the president at Wheaton College and, and here's what he says about joy and we're gonna wrap up here. Here's what he says about joy. It says, joy does not depend on circumstance at all. It is based rather on rejoicing in one's eternal identity in Jesus Christ. Joy is not circumstantial. And I know you've heard that your whole life. But it's based on your eternal identity in Jesus Christ. So, what is your identity in Jesus Christ this morning? And maybe you're like the shepherds where the world's perspective of you, the church's perspective of you has pushed you away, has, has made you uh, become something you're not proud of or things that you don't like to admit. And so maybe you've covered it up. Maybe you're just trying to pretend there's no safe place for confession. And so you're just, your identity is I'm a sinner. I have no shot. I've got nothing going for me. I've got all of this in my past. Is that your identity this morning? 
Or is your identity, look how holy I am, look how pure I am, look what I've done, I've never done that. I might have sin, but my sin is just gossip. It's not as bad. Well, our identity in Christ is that we are sinners saved by grace. And even more than that, we are sons and daughters of the most high king. A number of years ago, Look Magazine published a picture of JFK in the Oval Office at the Resolute Desk. JFK, um, whether you like him or not, uh, is, was, at that point was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Could do whatever he wanted, had power over uh, the greatest military of the time, had power uh, to make call shots and do things. He was the most powerful human being on the face of the earth. Uh, He and his wife had tried to have kids. They had some struggles and miscarriage and then they give birth uh, to JFK Jr. And there's this picture that, beautiful, it's JFK Jr. in the Oval Office found a hidden door under the Resolute Desk, which is where presidents make their most important decisions. It's where they do their work. And JFK Jr., the son of the president, is just playing in the Oval Office. You see, there's an identity that JFK Jr. had uh, that you and I don't have when it comes to presidents. He was his son. So if JFK, if a president today were to walk into our room, the president were to walk into this room, uh, many of us would stand. Uh, You would stand, maybe you would salute, you would show honor. Many of us would be humble. Maybe you'd be happy. Maybe you wouldn't. I don't know where you stand politically. But you would, you would be humble that the president was here. No matter, it was the office that carried this, uh, this authority and this power. If we were alive back then or we and JFK would have to walk in, we would have done the same thing. But you know what JFK Jr. would have done? Would have just run up to his dad and gave him a hug. And we would stand at a distance but his son would approach with confidence. We'll finish this service in a little bit and Meredith will go get our kids from upstairs and Landry will come um, out. She'll wanna do the elevator because elevators are amazing to four-year-olds and she'll do the elevator or come down the stairs and she'll be dropping things along the way and not telling Meredith where she's going and then she'll run into this room and she will find me and she will say, Daddy! And she will run to me and she will grab my leg and she will say, hold me, hold me. And I will hold her. She knows I'm a pastor. She knows those things, but I'm her dad. I'm her dad. And this morning, your identity for many of us um, is not rooted in your sonship. And so you are set apart. You, are, you're, you're, you stand off from God, even though, even though you've been adopted into his family, you stand back. Well, yeah, but I have this sin or I've got to get this right. I've got to figure this out. No, you don't. No, you don't. You are his son. And when he walks into the room as a child, joy fills your soul and you run to him and you say, hold me, daddy, hold me. You aren't distant. You aren't far off. You've been brought near. No, I don't care what you've done, but what your sins are against you. I don't know if you're Moses or you're Abraham or you're Jacob or you're David, 
if you're Osama bin Laden, I don't know, but if, if you have called Jesus Lord, then your sins no longer separate you. And when God walks into the room, we have joy. This morning, I don't know what's keeping you from joy particularly, but I would imagine it's this. You don't have a spiritual identity as his son or his daughter. Because if you did, if you did, you would run past all the saluters and you would hug your savior. He's drawn near to you that you might draw near to him. This is the joy of Christmas. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes. Just as we ponder some of these thoughts this morning. I know he's felt distant to you. I know it. And he has to me at times. And we've learned over and over again that he's, he hasn't gone anywhere. Is there anybody this morning who would say, I, 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 he's not my heavenly father. I, I'm not a child of God. I, I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. I haven't given my life to him. And I'm chasing joy everywhere else, but I've never given my life to Jesus. He's just God. He's not my father. Anybody this morning would say, I want to be a son or a daughter. I'm tired of the fear. I'm tired of being far off and I want to be brought near. Praise God. How many of you this morning, in all honesty, would say that joy has been hard to come by lately? Anybody this morning would raise your hand boldly and say, it's just been so hard to be joyful. Maybe the year's been hard. Maybe you just, and you would say, how many of you would say, I, I don't feel near, fear near to God. I don't feel near to him. I, I feel distant. I feel like he's far off. Please hear this this morning. Your joy will not be found in your obedience. Your joy will not be found in your church attendance. Your joy will not be found in your money or in your family. True joy is only found in the eternal identity you have as his son or his daughter. Would you play under his desk today? The sovereign king of the universe has invited you to joy today. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for Christmas. I thank you for the power of your birth. That you who were once far off had to be touched, to be swaddled. And God, we have the same access to you today. It's like the shepherds and the woman at the well in John 4. When you meet us at those places, would you fill us with joy? Make us a joyful people today, not because of anything that we've done, but simply because of who we are. We are your son or we're your daughter. And many of us just need you to hold us today. We rejoice that you are near. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.